Welcome back to the Devil Training Institute podcast, everyone. I'm Ross Thorburn, and in today's episode, my guest, Professor Jonathan Newton, and I are going to be talking about making group work successful. Jonathan's worked as a language teacher and teacher educator for more than 30 years, and he's co-authored numerous books on teaching English. And I can highly recommend to you all his book called How to Teach Speaking, A Guide for English Language Teachers. So in today's podcast, you'll hear Jonathan and I talk about why group work is important, different ways of setting group work up, why it becomes easier over time, and what we can do after group work to maximise learning. Enjoy the episode! Hi Jonathan, welcome to the podcast. To begin with, I think teachers often plan lessons where the students learn some language and then at the end of the class they get to practice speaking it. But you've pointed out that by speaking, students also learn. So why or how does speaking help students learn language? I mean, this is a fundamental premise of task-based language teaching, that you do something purposeful with language, with whatever language resources you've got. And in the process, you identify gaps in what you can express and that process then uh, gives you a focus for learning oh, i need to fill that gap i need to find the word or i need to find the phrase there can i ask the teacher can my peer student who i'm interacting with help me look up a dictionary whatever so it drives this process of learning language and using it at the same time but i, I think communicating to learn has three particular benefits at a cognitive level I think I've already alluded to this one that communication activities activate learnt knowledge and that's a crucial step for being fluent in a language right you know at a certain point you've got to step out from behind a textbook behind language exercises and you've got to put the language to use you've got to use the language as a sense making tool and I think too much formal language education uh, doesn't deal with sense-making. It treats language learning as a knowledge accrual system, you know, where you just store up this large bank of knowledge. But I'm really keen to balance that out with opportunities to activate that knowledge. And communicating is the key way to do that. Um, the other thing about communicating is, of course, it creates all kinds of rich associative memories. You know, we know that rich networks of associations are the key to deep learning. So if you've been using new words that are just partially familiar to do a task of some kind to communicate, you've just established a whole lot of associative memories, which means that those language items are easy to access in the future, right? So that's the cognitive perspective. I mean, I think socially, it, it's really important to recognize that you know, language evolved in our distant human past because it afforded groups the opportunity to cooperate. So language and cooperation are really deeply infused in our human psyche. Um, so at a social level, communicating in the language you are learning, so it helps build community, it helps build a sense that this language is doing something in my life that's real and makes sense. That's a bit abstract and a bit fluffy for some teachers. Now, I'll get even more fluffy if you want, though, because I think at a psychological level, communicating in a second language fosters agency. The sense that, ah, oh, I can do something with this language. It really is a tool which I can use to successfully exchange some information or share a point of view or something like that. And that's highly motivating. So if you want to motivate learners, get them to do things that have a sense of success and achievement and purpose. 
Do you have any examples, Jonathan, of teachers doing that in class, getting students to communicate to learn as opposed to just learning to communicate? One of my PhD students, uh, Trang Bui, a few years ago, did a wonderful study in primary schools in Vietnam. Now, this is interesting. In the primary schools, the new textbook is ostensibly communicative, but it's very PPP. So the first part of the lesson is here's the structures, listen to them and repeat them. The second part of the lesson is kind of very controlled drilling. And then at the end of the lesson, if there's time, and there's often not, there's a little tiny communicative activity, right? So communication is relegated to the end. Now, Chang Bui turned this around and had the learners do an input-based task to begin with, listen and fill in a table. I'll give you an example of one particular lesson. It was about school timetables. And then she went straight into an information gap activity. Now, these are grade five kids with not much English. So this is a big step. And they the kids had different versions of timetables and had to find out, you know, at what time do you have English? At what time do you have science and maths? You know, you've got to ask each other these questions. Now, this is the first time these kids had ever done something as free as this in English. And quite a lot of the time they were using a mix of English and the Vietnamese, but the engagement level was incredible. They were totally immersed in doing this and using as much English as they could. And one lovely example she's got is of this pair of kids. They finished the task and one of them sort of shouts out in Vietnamese to the teacher, teacher, we're finished. The teacher's on the other side of the room, doesn't notice. And so this kid turns to his partner and says, what's your favorite subject? In English, you know, I mean, there's a grade five kids in English and this kid says, oh, my favorite subject is Vietnamese. What's your favorite subject? You know, and, and so they have this little conversation in English. Now, if you're a teacher and you see that happening, you've got to say, you know, my, you've just made my day. So that's what I mean that's by agency. You know, that's what you need. You want kids who have a sense of ownership of the language that they've been learning. And you don't get ownership by doing endless exercises. You do it by putting it to use in ways which mean something. That's a great example there of the students being so motivated that they go beyond what's in the course book. But obviously setting up group work tasks like that is easier said than done. And you've said before that, quote, if teachers lack experience in setting up group work, their use of group work is likely to remain a poor cousin to learning in more traditional ways in the classroom. So can you tell us, Jonathan, what are the key skills that teachers need to make spoken group work effective? Yeah, I think the first thing, and I say this from observing many classrooms in, in Malaysia in particular, where I worked in teacher training on and off for quite a few years, looking at primary schools and secondary schools, I think it's um, using the physical space, classroom space effectively, and using it effectively in relation to the kind of task the learners are doing. So if you've got an information gap task, the dumbest thing to do is to have two kids sitting beside each other, looking at each other's task sheet. And I've seen that so many times. It's supposed to be an information gap. In other words, I can't see what you've got and you can't see what I've got. Well, don't put kids side by side. In group work, kids should be eye to eye and toe to toe, looking at each other. And another example, I've seen uh, group work involving four kids along, you know, one, two, three, four, along a series of desks. And so kids one and four can't hear each other or talk to each other. So it's really simple, but it's using space. And I think teachers who are used to a more lockstep teacher-centered approach perhaps aren't used to thinking more creatively around getting the space right and getting the movement right. I think another thing I would say is, as teachers, be prepared to fall over a few times and make a mess of group work. 
You know, that's part of the learning process. And be prepared for learners to be confused too if this is not part of their normal way of being in a classroom. If you've got kids that are going to maths, geography, science, physics, whatever, and all those subjects are taught in a fairly traditional way, they come to the English class and you suddenly get them to do creative, funky things, you know, hey, get together and talk, you know, they'll either go wild or they'll be frozen into inactivity, you know. So I think appreciating that for kids, there's some training involved, that learners have to be socialized and just to learn what it means to be effective, cooperative learners. So those are a couple of things. I'm thinking of um, Kagan, you know, the guru of cooperative learning. You know, he talked about pies, P-I-E-S. So, you know, a key to group work is positive interdependence. I need your contribution and you need mine. We need each other to do the task. So that has to be part of the nature of the task. Individual accountability, that I can't be a passenger in the group. Every one of us has to be accountable for what we've learned. And so that has to be built into the task. There needs to be something which ensures that interaction is, is equal, that, that kids are, you know, so this is the PIE, equal uh, interaction, that everybody's got a chance to speak. Now, maybe you, that's by the teacher assigning roles so that each person has a role to play or an information gap where we all have a bit of information that other people need. So that forces us to be equal. I mean, having said that, there are often, I think, situations where you've got weaker learners and you put them with stronger learners, and that's okay. And the PIES, the final one, is simultaneous interaction. That group work allows the whole class to be interacting at the same time rather than one person at a time. So it's incredibly efficient in terms of maximizing opportunities to use the language. I'm really glad you mentioned out there that teachers need to be prepared to fail the first few times they do group work. And I think in that way, group work is like most other difficult skills in life. You have to do it a few times before you get it right. Do you think that group work tends to become easier over time, Jonathan, because teachers become better at setting things up? Or do you think it's more that students get used to the structure and knowing what's expected of them? But I think it's both, Ross. I think teachers learn from their mistakes, don't they? And, and learners get habituated into a certain way of functioning in the classroom. So if, you know, the first couple of times they're told to get into groups and it's chaos and they don't want to move their desks or they don't want to be with that person or that person or whatever, there'll be resistance. But after a while, as you say, the teacher just has to sort of give the, the brief instruction and they know what to do. Okay, the movement happens. Now, for example, one of my favorite little techniques for group work is the donut you know, arrangement. You, know, you divide the class up into two halves just by numbering them one, two, one, two, one, two, or they can number themselves. And then all the ones just have to stand right around the edge of the classroom. And then the other half of the class, who are still all sitting down, all get up and join with one of the outside ring and they form an inside ring. So you've got this donut, and the, each person is facing another person. So then you've got this great opportunity for pair work, and the, you can continually move that inner circle around. You can sort of click it around, one click, two clicks, three clicks, four clicks, and right, move to the next person, have the same conversation, move to the next person, have a different, whatever the task is. And, and that's a really nice way of of managing the structure. You know, I talked about structure, structure, structure. And first time that's just chaotic because they don't really know, oh, what do you mean? And you end up people sort of stand together in clusters. And, no, you've got to spread out. You've got to face inwards. And then the other ones, once they get to do that a couple of times, you know, you just say donut and they're away. But I found that once I got people into this donut, they were started by taking their chairs with them. I said, no, no, just save time, stand up. 
And then it just went so well having the task as a standing task. And then I started to think, why do we always sit down all the time? But, you know, with learners, how much of what we do in the classroom could we do standing up at times? You know, let's do the next activity standing and moving. I've got to say, I've always found one of the benefits of getting students to stand up and move around is it really changes the focus of the lesson away from the front of the classroom. And I think that makes things much more memorable. Paul Nation, who was my teacher, I remember him saying, and he was quoting H.V. George, who was in turn his guru, if you like, I'm saying that the desk is the enemy of learning. You put somebody behind a desk and they take on an identity and they take on a role. You take them out from behind the desk and the identity shifts. Finally, Jonathan, we've obviously been talking about group work, but a lot of learning can happen after group work. But I think that part often gets forgotten about. So what are some things that teachers can do with students after a group work task to maximize learning? It's a really good question to ask because I think it's a complete mistake and a loss of a lot of opportunities if we don't make the most of the post-task phase. Now, the post-task phase should be a phase where learners are, are reflecting or identifying, hey, what did I do well? What have I accomplished? What are the things I struggled with? Where were the gaps? What are the things I'm still not comfortable with or, or confident about in my, in my performance? So this develops in learners a kind of meta-awareness of how they're learning. And I think that's a really important skill for learners to have. It's a hard skill because, you know, often if we've done a task, we're exhausted and it's hard to reflect, isn't it? You know, and it requires a, a new muscle in the brain. Um, but I think that's a very powerful muscle to develop. Now, the process of reflecting on learning, of course, is itself another step of learning. Because when you have to recall, uh, okay, what were some of the key words or phrases or things that I struggled with that we resolved in this activity, you're actually strengthening the learning by the very act of recalling it. And if the only experience you have of these new target forms, this new language, is the task itself without recall, then the chance of you forgetting it is very high. But if in the post-task phase you have to recall it in some way, or even better, do the task again with somebody else or a little bit differently, right, uh, then you're greatly strengthening the learning opportunities. One more time, everyone. That was Jonathan Newton. For more from Jonathan, click on the link in the show notes. For more from us, go to our website, www.tefeltraininginstitute.com. If you'd like to support the show, remember, you can click on the link in the show notes to buy us a coffee, or you can write us a positive review wherever you listen, or you can just share this episode with a friend. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you again next time. Goodbye.